Government spending appears to be a big sticking point in debt ceiling talks between the White House and congressional Republicans. It's Wednesday, May 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Florida Governor Republican Ron DeSantis will officially enter the 2024 presidential race today. Also this hour. Decades of Catholic leadership decisions and policies have allowed known child sex abusers to hide, often in plain sight. The attorney general in Illinois is out with results from a multi-year investigation into abuse in the Catholic Church. Plus the massive typhoon hitting the U.S. territory of Guam. And this hour, why an eating disorders help group is replacing its phone hotline with an online chatbot. In sports, Celtics win, Red Sox lose, mostly sunny in the 70s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The timeline to resolve the dispute over the nation's debt ceiling is getting very short. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers are facing a critical deadline in early June to agree and avert a potential federal government default. After numerous stops and starts this week, White House and congressional negotiators appear no closer to reaching an agreement. House Republicans emerged from a closed-door meeting with Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Tuesday, pointing a finger at the Biden administration. The main sticking point has been how to cap government spending. Despite the latest setback, the White House on Tuesday said that talks remain productive. When asked by reporters whether there's enough time to get a deal through Congress before June 1st, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said there's a space and an opportunity to have a bipartisan, reasonable agreement. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Typhoon Mawa is hitting the U.S. territory of Guam in the Pacific Ocean. The eye will likely slide just above the island in the next few hours, but residents could still get winds of 140 miles per hour. Guam's governor, Lou Leon Guerrero, says there is damage. There are damages of houses. We had to initiate a, a rescue mission. Eight people were rescued and now are in the shelter. But I will have my first assessment right after the winds start tapering down. Uh, President Biden declared quickly emergency for the island of Guam, which allowed us then to access a lot of resources from FEMA. Guam could get as much as 25 inches of rain from the typhoon. There is a flash flood warning in effect, as well as an extreme wind warning. Billionaire Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow has refused to provide information to the Senate Judiciary Committee. The lawmakers are examining the ethics of Crow's gifts to the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. NPR's Nina Totenberg has more. Earlier this month, the committee asked Crow to provide information about private jet and yacht trips, luxury vacations, and other gifts that he or his holding companies provided for Justice Thomas. Thomas did not disclose the gifts and has since said he will rectify the error. But the Judiciary Committee wants to know the details of these and potentially other gifts from Crow. Now, however, Crow, through his lawyer, is refusing to provide any of the requested information, contending that Congress has no right to investigate alleged ethical violations or to legislate a Supreme Court Code of Ethics. In response, Durbin said the real estate magnate has no credible legal basis for his refusal. Unspoken, the threat of a subpoena. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. 
You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Most Massachusetts parents are satisfied with their child's school and its academic offerings. That's according to a new poll out this morning by the Education Trust and the Mass Inc. Polling Group. But as WBUR's Max Larkin reports, many parents also have concerns about mental health, violence, and the after effects of the pandemic. Almost half of the 1,500 parents surveyed were at least somewhat concerned about their child's mental and emotional health, and a quarter said their school lacks the resources to address those concerns. Richard Carter of Taunton says parents have to be on guard about digital age loneliness. My wife and I, every time our daughter's home and she's in her room and she's on her phone or her iPad or her computer, We try to do things with her because we don't want her to be isolated. Despite a dip in recent test scores, over 75% of respondents believed their child is keeping up academically. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Governor Moore Healy is on a newly released list of 500 Americans now banned from entering Russia. Russian officials say the list is a countermeasure to anti-Russian sanctions by the Biden administration. Several other New England lawmakers also made the list. It also includes faculty from Harvard, Boston College, and Yale. On Beacon Hill, state senators rejected a plan to help cities and towns pay for the cost of police training. Senate Minority Leader Bruce Tarr wanted the Senate to put aside $5 million to help fund a 2020 law regarding police trainings. In a floor speech yesterday, Tarr said some departments find themselves in a bidding war for qualified police officers. It's imperative that we recognize our responsibility. We certainly recognize that with regard to requiring uniform training that would be effective for our municipal police officers. But, Madam President, when we did that, it came at a tremendous cost, which we should also recognize. The amendment was rejected without any debate. UMass Boston kicks off its 55th commencement this afternoon. Senator Elizabeth Warren will deliver one of the keynote addresses. More than 3,600 undergraduate and graduate students will be honored during the two-day ceremony. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Celtics beat the Heat 116-99 to in Miami. Boston still trails the series three games to one. No NBA team has ever come back from a 3 nothing deficit in the playoffs. But Boston's Marcus Smart says he isn't worried about that. Now we just got to go win another one. That's all that matters. You know, we take it one game at a time. You know, we understand, you know, um, the, the odds are stacked against us, but uh, we're a team that, that believes in us no matter what, and we just got to keep going, and all that matters is the next game. Game 5 will be tomorrow night at the Garden. The Red Sox fell to the Angels 4 nothing last night in Anaheim. Mostly sunny today. It'll be in the upper 60s near the coast, low 70s and spots farther inland. Cloudy with some showers overnight. It'll be in the 40s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the 60s. It should remain dry through the holiday weekend. It's 50 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis put out a video showing him about to go on stage. Tonight, he's expected to join a conversation on Twitter with its owner, the billionaire Elon Musk. We'll be interviewing... Um 
Ron DeSantis, and he has quite an announcement to make. Assuming DeSantis goes through with his presidential bid, which he's been teasing for some time, he officially joins several declared Republican candidates, including a certain former president. NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell is following this. Kelsey, good morning. Good morning. Why announce on Twitter? Well, there are some symbolic benefits, and, you know, there's the possibility that he could go viral because he will be already on Twitter. Okay. (laughs) You know, on the symbolic side, he is doing this event with Elon Musk, and this will be a live Twitter Spaces event at 6 p.m. Eastern. Musk has said uh, that the interview will be live. There will be live questions, and he's kind of talked about this as an unedited, streamed event. And while Musk himself is kind of a controversial figure in the broader public, he is quite popular popular with Republicans. They, uh, you know, voters in the Republican Party say that they like this kind of bombastic rightward shift at Twitter. Musk hasn't exactly endorsed DeSantis, but doing this live event on Twitter kind of gives DeSantis the glow of an endorsement without actually hearing those words. You know, it also kind of sticks it to former President Trump, who used Twitter both as a candidate and as president to really drive the national agenda. But Trump hasn't really been using Twitter since he was banned. um, And he's been using his less popular site, True Social. So this is, you know, a lot of benefits for for DeSantis here. I guess some benefits for Musk as well. It drives some traffic to Twitter where uh, Musk is trying to pay his enormous debts. Um, But where does the Republican field stand as DeSantis joins? Well, it is getting more crowded. You know, he isn't even the only person to jump into the race this week. We saw Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, get into the race. Uh, DeSantis is really kind of the one who is most clearly attacking former President Trump, kind of at war with him. And, you know, Trump is really still the front runner. Some polls have him leading DeSantis by more more than 30 points. Um, And he's already spending big money on fighting with DeSantis. Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, is also in the race, and she's probably the other most seriously watched candidate who is actually running. We are still waiting, though, on former Vice President Mike Pence, and we're expecting that he will jump into the race maybe in early June. Kelsey, we're talking here about names, uh, Mm -hmm. different personalities, different backgrounds. But let's bring up, if I can, substance, how you would govern, what you would do with the country if you're president. Are any of the candidates offering any particular specific alternative to the way that Donald Trump ran the country? Well, not exactly, because they don't often talk about Trump directly, really at all. We do hear from Nikki Haley and Tim Scott about their religious beliefs. Haley, in particular, has focused a lot on her opposition to abortion. Now, Mike Pence, who, as I said, isn't actually in the race yet, has really focused on, you know, particularly following the Constitution, which is a clear jab at Trump. And he talks about a traditional conservative approach, his principles, these ideas that were common before Trump significantly changed the focus of the party. Uh, DeSantis, you know, is is different in that he has a very controversial record. He's in a battle with Disney. He signed a six-week abortion ban. So it's it's a little bit of a, uh, we'll see what happens as they get more into a fight with Trump. Kelsey, thanks for your insight. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for having me. That's NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell. We're coming up on Memorial Day weekend, and this one is expected to be the busiest in years for air travel. AAA says close to three and a half million travelers are expected to fly. And this all comes after a past few months marked by multiple disruptions to air travel. Southwest Airlines canceled more than 15,000 U.S. flights after a technical failure over the winter holidays. So are the airlines ready for the weekend? United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby spoke to me from the Denver airport. He talked about how his carrier is trying to work around weather-related delays. When weather happens, there's nothing you can do. But what you can do is recover quickly. And so what we attempt to do is really 
isolate the problem to the day and the location where the weather is and not have it bleed over into the rest of the system. We've gotten pretty good at that. So longer term, is there something more that the industry needs to do to cope with what are expected to be increasingly severe storms? Or do you think that you have this in hand now? Well, the biggest issue for us and for the industry is air traffic control staffing shortages. We have fewer air traffic controllers today than we had 30 years ago. And that is by far the biggest issue and and the most addressable. This is a 20 to 30 year old issue. We are working hard to get the right amount of resources in a bipartisan FAA reauthorization bill to address that issue. So let's talk about another issue of human capacity, right? American Airlines reached an agreement in principle with its pilots last week. Delta and its pilots reached a new contract agreement a few months ago. Both deals include pay raises for pilots. You don't have a deal yet. Your pilots have been picketing at hub airports across the country. I am interested in your take on what we understand the disagreement to be about, not so much overpay, but over quality of life issues, fatigue, the amount of time pilots are away from home. How will you address that? We think our pilots deserve the best deal in the industry. And we have put that deal on the table. I hope we're close to the finish line uh, with the pilots. But there are a lot of changes uh, that they requested in the contract and an awful lot of changes that we've agreed to. I hope that we are close to the finish line with them. Do you anticipate, though, that these pay increases and in, in, uh, quality of life enhancement will raise airfares even further. A couple of sources that we've consulted say there's already been an 18% increase in airfare costs from last March to this March. Do you think that prices will go even higher? It's an artificial comparison to compare it to what was happening during COVID because fares collapsed Mm -hmm. during COVID. But if you go back to pre-pandemic, they're still lower than they were in real terms 10 years ago. I think we've just returned to normal. Uh, my guess would be fares are going to grow kind of with inflation in the overall economy as they've historically done. We're just back to pre-COVID normality in airfares. And the Biden administration is pushing for new customer protections in the airline industry. One thing they're calling for is requiring airlines to compensate passengers for preventable delays. Have you responded to this proposal? And, and what have you said? I saw the Secretary of Transportation two weeks ago, and I'll tell you exactly what I said to him, which is one... We have every motivation to run a reliable operation because that's what's best for our customers, which means that's what's best for our business, uh, and we are doing that. By far, the biggest issue that we have is the weather slash air traffic control delays. I mean, it's just every day, it's chronic. But the third and I think most important point is a safety point. We start from day one with every employee. We drill it into them that safety is number one. It's everything. And if you all of a sudden start saying, well, there's a big expense associated with delaying or canceling this flight, I don't want to chip away at that safety foundation with a pilot or mechanic in the back of their minds saying, well, this is a close call and it's going to cost a lot of money and we shouldn't do that. Before we let you go, I want to ask this as a a business leader, the leader of a major American corporation. Congress and the White House are in the middle of negotiating a debt ceiling deal. Let's say they can't reach a deal and the country does default on its national debt. As a business leader, how are you thinking about this? Defaulting on the debt would be an unnecessary, unforced error. And so to me, our politicians, and this is bipartisan comment, need on both sides to find a compromise. There's a lot of dominoes lined up and they're really fragile. Um, And if it starts knocking over the other dominoes, it goes from 
a debt default to some kind of banking crisis or you know something else, that's the real risk that is really potentially damaging to the economy. And it would just be crazy for us to not get this done. Scott Kirby is the CEO of United Airlines speaking to us from Denver Airport. Mr. Kirby, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. I enjoyed it. How does it feel to be totally immersed in a game that you've only read about in history books? A virtual reality designer is helping people experience what it would be like to try on the spikes of baseball players in the Negro Leagues of the 1940s. Hey, rookie, show me that arm. The game is called Barnstormers, Determined to Win, and it was developed by Derek Hamm. Hamm is an associate professor at North Carolina State University. He says he doesn't think of it as a video, but more like a short interactive film. There's a screen in front of you. There's a division. You're still in your living room, and you're watching those things take place in front of you. VR breaks that barrier. And so instead of saying, I'm watching something about the Negro League, you're role-playing through it. Ham says the game is meant to offer a sense of the acclaim that the players received and also the racism that they experienced on the field. You boys got the folk around here real worked up. They all excited about your Negro baseball. Huh. Circus show if you ask me. When you want to share the feelings of another person, it doesn't have to just be pain and suffering. You could also feel what it's like for triumph or a story of triumph through pain and suffering. To give you that experience of like, man, these people are out here. They're out here to see me. Even though I'm not in the majors, even though that door was closed, you know what? We're going to make our own door. We're going to make our own space and do it at the highest level over here and have fun. Barnstormers Determined to Win is available on the gaming platform Steam. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, it's been three years since police officers killed George Floyd. The brutality that was captured on video ignited protests around the world. What's changed since then? Listen on your smart speaker by asking for NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBOR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the governor of Guam discusses preparations for a powerful typhoon that's expected to cause catastrophic damage to the U.S. territory. It's 719. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style event. Window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com. And the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy, nightfoundation.org. Today's episode of The Common is out with a focus this morning on the budget released by state senators and what it says about their priorities. Host Daryl C. Murphy breaks it all down. Check out The Common wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny with a high in the upper 60s today. It may reach the low 70s as you go toward central mass. Showers are likely tonight and temperatures will fall to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high in the mid 60s. It's 51 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from A24 with You Hurt My Feelings from Nicole Holof Center. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies star in a marriage comedy about the white lies people tell to those they love the most. Opens only in theaters May 26th. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Nearly 70,000 people last year reached out to a helpline operated by the National Eating Disorders Association. Those numbers had more than doubled during the COVID emergency, and they still haven't returned to pre-pandemic levels. But now the association is shutting down that helpline in favor of a chatbot. Kate Wells with Michigan Radio has more. The pandemic was this perfect storm for eating disorders. Hospitalizations and ER visits doubled. Helpline volunteers Katie Mehta, Nicole Rivers, and Keiko Fox say people were isolated, they were stressed, they were cut off from support. I think this was an 11-year-old that their parents, you know, they told them that they were struggling and the parents said that they didn't believe in eating disorders. A woman who was, I believe, like 67 years old and just kind of battling it by herself. An 11-year-old girl from Greece who thought that she might have an eating disorder and she was really scared to tell her parents. It was difficult because um, this individual was also suicidal. And we were actually able to encourage her that this is not something that is her fault. I was able to set her up with some treatment options and, you know, talk her into believing that this is real and this is important. These individuals come on multiple times because that's, that's all they have is the chat line. Many of these helpline volunteers and staff get into this work because they have recovered from eating disorders themselves. Staffer Abby Harper says that is part of why the helpline is so powerful. These are people with shared experiences. When you know what it's been like for you and you know that feeling, you can connect with others. During COVID, the types of calls, texts and messages that the helpline got started to change. Kind of more crisis type calls with suicide, self-harm and then like child abuse or child neglect. 
The helpline is run by just six paid staffers, a couple supervisors, and they train and oversee up to 200 volunteers at any given time. The staff felt overwhelmed, undersupported, burned out. There was a ton of turnover. So the helpline staff voted to unionize. So cliche, but like, we did not have our oxygen masks on and we were putting on everyone else's oxygen mask and it was just like becoming unsustainable. Managers at the National Eating Disorders Association, or NIDA, also thought that this situation was becoming unsustainable. Lawrence Molar is a VP at the nonprofit, and she says the increase in crisis calls also meant more legal liability. Our volunteers are volunteers. They're not professionals. They don't have crisis training. And we really can't accept that kind of responsibility. We really need them to go to those services who are appropriate. The increased demand also meant that wait lists were getting longer, too. And that's frankly unacceptable in 2023 for people to have to wait a week or more to receive the information that they need, the specialized treatment options that they need. In March, the helpline staff formally notified NIDA about their unionization. Four days later, they were in what seemed like a pretty routine virtual staff meeting. NPR obtained audio of the call. And abruptly, NIDA's board chair, Jeff Craddock, fired all the helpline staff. We will subject to the terms of our legal responsibilities, begin to wind down the helpline as currently operating. After more than 20 years, the helpline was being shut down. Instead, Craddock said, Nita would be transitioning to a chatbot named Tessa. With the transition to Tessa, the AI-assisted technology expected around June 1st. So we wanted to share this information with you. Now, Nita says that it can't discuss employee matters, and staff and volunteers say that they worry there's no way a chatbot is going to be able to give people the kind of human empathy that comes from a human. And the people who made Tessa agree. I do think that we wrote her to attempt to be empathetic, but it is not, again, a human. This is Dr. Ellen Fitzsimmons-Craft. She's a professor of psychiatry at Washington University's medical school. Nita paid her team to create Tessa a few years ago. And right now, the chatbot can walk a user through a specific series of therapeutic techniques about something like body image. It's not an open-ended tool for you to talk to and feel like you're just going to have access to kind of a listening ear, maybe like the helpline was. Tessa is not chat GPT. She can't think for herself or go off the rails like that. She's programmed with only a limited number of possible responses. And Fitzsimmons, Kraft, and her team have done small studies showing that people who interact with Tessa actually do better than those who are just put on the wait list. It's really a tool in its current form that's going to help you learn and use some strategies to address your disordered eating and your body image. Professor Marzia Gassimi studies machine learning and health at MIT, and she is skeptical about this chatbot idea. She worries that it could actually be damaging. I think it's very alienating to have an interactive system present you with irrelevant or what can feel like tangential information. What the research shows people actually want, she says, is for their vulnerability to be met with understanding. If I'm disclosing to you that I have an eating disorder, I'm not sure how I can get through lunch tomorrow. I don't think most of the the people who would be disclosing that would want to get a generic link. Click here for tips on how to rethink food. Often the people who come to the NIDA helpline 
have never talked about their eating disorder before. Helpline staffer Abby Harper says that is why people often ask the volunteers and the staff, are you a real person or are you a robot? And no one's like, oh, shoot, you're a person. Well, bye. Um, It's not the same. And there's something very special about being able to share that kind of lived experience with another person. Nita is winding down the helpline this month and is no longer taking new calls or messages. The transition to the chatbot Tessa is scheduled for June. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells. This story comes from NPR's partnership with Michigan Radio and KFF Health News. This is NPR News. Welcome to Wednesday. Coming up at 745 on Morning Edition. After years of debilitating drought, the whitewater rafting industry is roaring back to life as California's massive winter snowpack melts. It's 729. The WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com careers. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. There's still no agreement between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to raise the debt ceiling. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has repeatedly warned the U.S. could default as early as June 1st if Congress doesn't act. NPR's David Gurup says a default would lead to a downgrade of the country's credit rating and likely spark a sharp sell-off on Wall Street. The day after that downgrade back in 2011, the S&P 500 sank by almost 7%. We'd probably see the dollar weaken and U.S. government bonds would be seen as riskier. Because of that, investors would demand higher interest from the U.S. because of that additional risk. The White House continues to insist negotiations to raise the debt limit have been productive. Later today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to enter the race for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. The governor has a live event scheduled on Twitter with the platform's CEO, Elon Musk. The National Weather Service says Typhoon Mawa is now passing over Guam as a Category 4 storm. Top winds are about 140 miles per hour. Trees and power lines are being toppled as thousands of people ride out the storm in shelters. Landon Adlett is chief meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Guam. Our doors are rattling. We hear little whistles through the windows. 
Forecasters say Mawa is the strongest storm to hit Guam in decades. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. The Boston City Council will meet again today to discuss a new redistricting map for the city. A previous version was thrown out by a federal judge. If the council doesn't approve a new map by next week, it would delay the September 12th primary election. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says a court may step in if the council doesn't meet the deadline. Massachusetts advocates are leading a push to make the birth control pill available without a prescription. The Food and Drug Administration is considering the issue now. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, oral contraceptives were first invented by a Brookline doctor and a Shrewsbury biologist. The men had to look outside Massachusetts to study the new drug since birth control was illegal in the state in the 1950s. They did a large trial in Puerto Rico. Hundreds of women signed up, but it's not clear they were told the medication was still experimental. Kelly Blanchard from Ibis Reproductive Health, based in Cambridge, helped spearhead the nearly 20-year effort to take the pill over the counter. We needed to really reckon with and explore history of harm and oppression in the development of the pill itself. She says reproductive justice advocates were part of the campaign. The FDA is expected to decide this summer whether to make the pill available without a prescription. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. State education officials want students on their phones less during school. The Massachusetts Department of Education is considering a grant program to help districts restrict cell phones in classrooms. They believe it would cut down on distractions for students. Officials say there could could eventually be a statewide policy on students and phones in school. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. The Celtics' season remains alive. They beat the Heat 116-99 to last night in Miami. Boston still trails three games to one. Game five will be tomorrow night at the Garden. The Red Sox were shut out by the Angels 4-0 last night in California. The teams will wrap up their series tonight. Upper 60s today under mostly sunny skies. It may reach the low 70s as you go towards Central Mass. Tonight we'll have lows in the upper 40s and showers are likely. Tomorrow mostly sunny and cooler with a high in the low to mid 60s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Season 2 of The Tower starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas including Line of Duty and The Responder starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from the University at Buffalo, where researchers are developing new technology for people to take control of their health, like an earbud-based system that can detect common ear ailments. Buffalo.edu slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. The National Weather Service says Super Typhoon Mahuar is slashing at the U.S. territory of Guam. The storm has been carrying 140-mile-an-hour winds and 170-mile-an-hour gusts. It was forecast to be one of the worst tropical cyclones to hit the island in decades, with a storm surge as high as 25 feet. Dana Williams is there reporting for the Pacific Daily News. We've seen extensive power outages, lots of rain. The seas are, are really high. The surface is really high. 
and it's really dangerous. Officials had warned of catastrophic damage and urged people to evacuate the coast and find shelter in reinforced concrete buildings. Guam's Governor Lou Leon Guerrero is on the line with us now. Governor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What's it like where you are now? You know, it was pretty scary uh, going into Category 4 to almost a super typhoon. But, you know, Michelle, our people are very resilient. Do you mind if I ask, though, you're no stranger to storms, but how, how scary is this one compared to others that you've experienced? Well, you know, I experienced Typhoon Karen, which is the most severe uh, typhoon that we have recorded here in Guam in 1962. Um, that one was 150 to gust of 200. And uh, the whole island was really flattened by that typhoon. So to me, that's the most scary. This one, you know, as governor, of course, I'm very worried for our people's safety and uh, very concerned. And that that is what's making me uh, much more anxious is the safety and the protection of our people with these storms, because we know that we can't leave because we're we're in the storm for about 12 hours. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Have you heard any reports of damage so far? Yes, there are damages of houses. We had to initiate a a rescue mission. Eight people were rescued and now are in the shelter. But I will have my first assessment right after the winds start tapering down. And, you know, I just want to thank President Biden as he declared quickly emergency for the island of Guam, which allowed us then to access a lot of resources from FEMA. And I just want to thank also Deanne Criswell. The FEMA administrator, Deanne Criswell. What does that, yeah. that help you do? For people who aren't familiar with this kind of emergency, what, what does that kind of declaration uh, help you do? That declaration allows FEMA people to come to Guam, and we have them already. It allows them to already prepare and plan for FEMA support. You know, like, for example, if we needed generators or if we needed any kind of supplies that FEMA can get. Plus, it allows us to work very closely with our team. That allows FEMA to quickly provide those resources. Does being a U.S. territory as opposed to a state change anything when it comes to securing the relief that you need and the resources that you need or you're going to need? I I don't think so, because I've seen your disasters in hurricane, right? Mm -hmm. And the president is is doing the same thing. He's declaring them emergency. He's getting FEMA people on the ground, so forth. So I don't think there's any inequities in in any of that treatment. In fact, if anything, I think we get uh, more support quickly because of our isolated area. Hmm. You know, because we we can't have we don't have the help of, say, other states bringing other resources to us. Governor, before we let you go, how are you doing? I am so proud of my team. My team is amazing. Uh, And I'm calm. I am uh, organized. We talk strategies. We prepare. So I think that's how we address this. So I have a lot of good resource and support, which just makes me less stressful in having to uh, make decisions and interacting quickly.
Lou Leon Guerrero is the governor of Guam. Governor, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us during the middle of this whole situation. And I do hope uh, that all will continue to go well for you and uh, the folks in, in Guam. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Michelle. Some other news now. An investigation finds the Catholic Church in Illinois did the same as in other places. The church failed to report hundreds of clergy members who were accused of sexual abuse. The state attorney general identified almost 2,000 children who were harmed over seven decades. Here's Cameron Coutinello of our member station WBEZ. Illinois' investigation began in late 2018 with a review of documents from all of the state's six Catholic dioceses. Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul said the list of alleged abusers included more than 450 priests and other clergy members. He says before the investigation, the church had only reported 103. It is my sincere hope that this report will shine light on those who violated their positions of power and trust to abuse innocent children and on the men in church leadership who covered up that abuse. This Illinois investigation is one of several across the country that was sparked in part by an investigation of Catholic priests in Pennsylvania five years ago. Raul says it was a lengthy process, with more than 600 survivors and family members interviewed. Helen Rainforth from Central Illinois was one of them. She says members of her church threatened to sue her when she first reported a case of abuse involving a relative in 1997. After that, she spoke with lawyers, police, and has even traveled to Rome for help. But she said this report is the first time she's felt validation for the survivors. I have worked with so many people that have been harmed that the most important thing that they're told is, we believe you. We totally believe what you're saying. What this report did was not only affirm the belief, it proved, it proved the truth. Chicago's Archbishop Blaise Supich apologized in a statement to anyone harmed and called the abuse repugnant. He added the church began overhauling its policies in 1992 and cooperated with the state's investigation. No cleric with even one substantiated allegation of sexual abuse of a minor against him is currently serving in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Illinois Attorney General Raul says 330 of the accused clergy have died, and the statute of limitations prevented any prosecution in many of the cases. Part of the report included a number of recommendations, including how to handle any future child sexual abuse allegations at Illinois' Catholic churches. For NPR News, I'm Cameron Cucinello in Springfield, Illinois. This afternoon on All Things Considered, many people wait for a liver transplant because not enough are donated. Now a change in the rules will make it even harder for some patients to qualify. Who loses out? Listen wherever you are, on your phone, on your computer, on your smart speaker, on the radio. This is NPR News. Join us for All Things Considered today from 4 to 6.30. Listen on your way home from work on 90.9 WBUR or on the WBUR mobile app. 
Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, President Biden says relations with China are, quote, thawing as a new ambassador from Beijing arrives in the U.S. We'll have a high in the upper 60s today. It'll also be breezy and mostly sunny. Tonight, upper 40s, and there's a good chance of rain. Tomorrow, we drop back to the low and mid-60s under mostly sunny skies. It's 53 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And Porter Square Books, popping up at the Seaport Summer Market the first three weekends in June from 11 to 7. You can kickstart summer reading with Porter Square Books, Boston Edition. Rhode Island-based Citizens Bank will pay $9 million to settle allegations it mismanaged fraud complaints. Federal regulators say the bank violated consumer protection laws by failing to properly address its customers' credit card disputes. Citizens did not admit to fault as part of the settlement. Boston-based General Electric says it's building a new assembly line at its factory outside of Albany, New York. The $50 billion project will assemble parts for onshore wind turbines. It'll also bring about 200 jobs to the area. The plant will be part of GE's new energy spinoff called GE Vernova that'll become a separate company based in Cambridge next year. A breakthrough drug by a Cambridge-based biotech is getting approval from the Food and Drug Administration, Blueprint Blueprint Medicines says the drug treats a rare immune and blood condition that causes severe allergic reactions to ordinary things. It's 744. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. After years of drought, rivers across California are flowing. Fast and furious, as they say. Well, anyway, there's a movie by that name. Several of them. People Um, like it. People People like like it. it. People like them. The melting of a big snowpack is pushing water down from the mountains. And that flooding, of course, has done damage. It is good news, though, if your business is whitewater rafting. Joshua Yeager of our member station KVPR takes us to the Sierra Nevada Mountains on the upper Kern River. Almost as soon as we launch our boat into the river, the directions start coming, and they cascade as swift as the water. Forward, forward, keep going. Our guide is Miles Curtis. He's been navigating the Kern for decades, which is a good thing because we've got a major rapid right ahead of us, and the water feels like ice even through my wetsuit. Dig it in, keep going. Millions of gallons of white foaming water swirl around us. This rapid is called Powerhouse. 
named after a century-old hydroelectric plant that towers overhead. After about 45 seconds of adrenaline-pumping paddling, we're through it. So we are having what we call big water year. That's Matt Volpert, who runs Kern River Outfitters here. His shop looks like a stable. Big rafts hang from the ceiling. We talk outside. We've had flows now that are higher than anything we've seen since 1983. The snowpack here in the southern Sierra is 300% of average. And when that starts melting, we have high water. And people love high water. Think of uh, like the best powder day you've ever had. But the high water also brings more risk. Authorities are urging people to be extra safe on surging, freezing rivers. Already this year, several people have been swept away. Volpert says customers have to show that they're fit enough to raft, and guides are doing extra training. They have to know every rock, every wave, every hole. The potential danger hasn't deterred customers from enjoying the massive flows. In fact, here on the Kern, a big water year means big business. It means we're going to be really busy. So we opened on April 1, and we expect to be running until mid-September. That's months longer than the most recent seasons, if you could even call them that. The Kern was barely a trickle before a dozen-plus atmospheric rivers drenched California this winter. Drought conditions have been so severe at times that they forced Volpert to close his business. At one point, he considered quitting for good. But we actually talk about it all the time. It's like, man, what are we doing here? It's a question outfitters throughout the West ask with increasing frequency. That's according to Aaron Bannon, director of America Outdoors. He represents 300 whitewater companies nationwide. He says many in California are working hard to adapt to the state's extreme weather whiplash, worsened by human-caused climate change. Some have modified trips when flows are piddly. Maybe you, you know, do two half-day trips instead of one full-day trip. Despite biblical-seeming challenges, the pandemic, wildfires, drought, flooding. Bannon and others say outfitters are a resilient bunch. More two! More two! Back on the river, we've just gone through another rapid. Our guide Curtis has his fingers crossed that the so-called big melt of the record snowpack doesn't happen too fast and make the river too dangerous. In the meantime, Curtis says rafters should make the most of a banner season. Yep, this is the season to raft. And as high temperatures rise across the Sierra, the high water might be the place to beat the heat. For NPR News, I'm Joshua Yeager on the Upper Kern River. This is NPR News. You're making your way through the week with WBUR. Coming up at 810 on Morning Edition, it's been a year since the shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. A new poll shows how Americans' attitudes toward guns have and haven't changed since then. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Hunter Biden is the subject of both court and congressional hearings. The committee is concerned by the complicated, suspicious network of over 20 companies. We have identified the Bidens and their associates used to enrich themselves. We'll explore the details behind the headlines about the president's son. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Florida Governor Republican Ron DeSantis plans to officially announce his 2024 presidential campaign on Twitter tonight. Meanwhile, in Washington, lawmakers are still struggling to reach an agreement on the nation's debt ceiling. And city councilors here in Boston will meet again today to discuss a new redistricting map for the city ahead of next week's deadline. Stay up to date on news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. Mostly clear skies today with temperatures in the upper 60s. Tonight it may dip into the 40s. Tomorrow cooler in the low to mid 60s under mostly sunny skies. It's 53 degrees in Boston at 751. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Kenneth Lynn has won awards and acclaim for his writing on prestige projects like House of Cards. But his latest work draws on something new and precious, his own roots as the son of Chinese immigrants. It's a new play called Exclusion, a commission from Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. for a series of new works focused on power. Lynn's play is animated by the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned Chinese laborers from immigrating to the United States. In the lead-up to passage of the law, as many as 20,000 Chinese laborers helped build America's transcontinental railroad, yet their contributions to the nation's growth were accompanied by vicious racist attacks. Somehow, Lynn managed to wrestle a comedy out of this tragic history. So when I spoke with Lynn earlier about the play, which runs through June 25th, I asked him how he pulled that off. I didn't start writing a comedy. I had been trying to write a very um, dutiful historical accounting, and my heart said, you need to stop. I very nearly called Molly, the artistic director at the theater, and said, I can't write this play. I've tried so many drafts of it, and my God, they're painful to me. You grew up in New York. Do you remember how you heard about the Chinese Exclusion Act or learned about it? I had known about it just from being a person who is of Chinese descent and very proud of my heritage, and as a person who wants to have my eyes and ears open to the world, it got in somewhere. But definitely, I don't ever remember being taught it. The intention was to actually get people out. Right, right. right. A lot of anti-Chinese sentiment came on the tail end of the Chinese building the railroad. And there's a particularly brutal event that plays a role in the play, the massacre of Chinese immigrants in Los Angeles in 1871. There was some kind of violent interaction that led to a mob rising, and they killed 10% of the Chinese people in Los Angeles at the time. The plot of the play, it it focuses on an historian whose critically acclaimed book Mm -hmm. about the Exclusion Act. It does speak about this terrible massacre that you just told us about. It gets picked up for a series, and then it follows her fight to keep control of the story. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, hmm, Kenneth Lynn has worked in Hollywood for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Where did this story come from? Well, you know, I mean, the play is about power. What I found in Hollywood over and over is that the right idea is the idea that is in alignment with the person that's in power. I was just wondering if that experience of having to fight to hold on to the truth as you understand it through your lens is something that you've experienced yourself. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I first started writing, everybody was telling me, you shouldn't do this. My family was saying, you shouldn't do this. And I went to the Yale School of Drama, and I came out, and I won all these playwriting awards. And people were still telling me, you shouldn't do this. And when I started meeting with agents and managers, 
a lot of the messaging was, you can try to do this, but don't write about Asian people. I was, you know, not following my parents' design of becoming a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. You know, I said, I have to succeed. I'm going to listen to that advice. And over time, you know, there's a little bit of a violence to yourself if you're thinking that way and working that way. Do you think that that's an experience that was, I don't want to say specific to you as a Chinese American? Or do you think that other people of color are told the same thing? I mean, it's not that long ago, but really in so many of the rooms that I was in, I was the first person ever in. You know, the first Asian person to ever get a play produced here, the first Asian person to ever win this award, the first and only Asian person in this writer's room. So people were just a little bit confused. They would read me on the page and they would say, wow. And then they would meet me and think, how do we line this up? You've heard of the phrase show business, right? Of course. Okay, because it's not show history. Right. It's show business. And to stay in business, you've got to put on a show. And that means prostitutes. Tell me about Katie, the historian. How do you understand her? You know, they're all a little bit me, right? So Katie is like the frustrated, nerdy wonk that's inside of me, trying to find ways of taking the things that I find so deeply interesting and putting them out there in the world, hoping that people will receive them and receive them gently <laughs> and appreciate them. And tell me about Harry, the writer, producer, director, who's tasked with getting her baby to the screen I mean, some kind of way. Well, Harry is like the wheeler dealer, big maca, a talented writer, but also a talented businessman. And he's found a way to really make work that people like. And he's looked upon this project. It was meaningful to him. And he's brought it in. And now he has to do what he does to it. Another one of the important characters is Viola, who is a, a well-known Asian-American actress. She's had some success, but right. she really wants more. Right. You tell me, but the tension is between, like, this is what the truth is. Right. But this is what, what is believed will sell. Yeah. It's very much in line with what I told you about my early career, right? A lot of people said, we think you're good. We just don't believe you will sell. So you need to find a way to be a, something that will sell and you don't sell. <laughs> and I, like, I listened to a very interesting interview in which Michelle Yeoh, who just won the Academy Award, was sitting with a table full of these beautiful, wonderful actors. And she says, I have envy because you all get to try on all the different roles. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's very much in line with like, for me, what it feels like to be Asian in America sometimes of just like not being permitted to be in a space that allows you to have size, right? And at the end of the day, Michelle is still winning the Academy Award for a martial arts picture. Hmm. When you look at that with the understanding that there are Asian actors who are as talented as Meryl Streep, who are as talented as Tom Hanks, and there's only a specific kind of role they get to play right now. It's painful. Was part of your goal with the play to allow these actors to have more space? Yeah, I made a checklist for myself. What do other actors get to do that Asian actors never get a chance to do? Right? So I was like, I want an Asian woman to be able to take the stage from the first moment of the play into the last moment. Check. I want an Asian guy to just be a guy that doesn't necessarily have to like know Kung Fu or be great at math. Check. Has this opened something up in you or for you? This is my life now. This is my job now. And I've gotten good at it. You know, I always felt like I was pretending a little bit before. And 
I feel like this is a very complete play, and I've discovered my complete voice as a writer, the voice that I've been sort of fighting to cultivate for a long time now. Like, I really feel like this is me on, on the stage, and I don't know that I've ever totally felt that way before. Kenneth Lynn is the playwright of Exclusion. It is playing at the Arena Stage in Washington now. Kenneth Lynn, thank you so much for talking Thank you. With us. This was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Nuance is committed to helping physicians restore their work-life balance with DAX, an AI-powered solution that automates clinical documentation. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu graduate. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. As lawmakers race to come to an agreement to avoid a potential federal default, the nation is at risk of losing its prized AAA credit rating. It's Wednesday, May 24th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we profile the Louisiana congressman who's emerged as a crucial figure in the debt talks, Republican Garrett Graves. Many members of Congress are desperate to want you to believe that they're the smartest person in the room. That is not Garrett Graves. Also this hour, survivors struggle one year after the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Plus, we trace the origins of the birth control pill back to a clinic in Brookline. There was considerable controversy here because the pill is essentially what they would call back then a lifestyle drug. Mostly sunny in upper 60s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The clock is ticking as the U.S. moves closer to a government debt default. The Treasury Department warns that soon the U.S. may no longer be able to pay its bills. But NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports negotiators from the White House and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy seem to be making slow progress. Although both President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy expressed optimism after a Monday meeting at the White House that a deal could be reached, GOP negotiators expressed frustration Tuesday on the state of staff-level talks. Here's Louisiana Congressman Garrett Graves, a top negotiator for McCarthy. Unless and until the White House recognizes that this is a spending problem, then we're going to continue to have a significant gap. Graves said the two camps remain far apart on areas like spending caps, the duration of a debt limit increase, and work requirements for various federal safety net programs. Barbara Sprint and Pierre News, the Capitol. The town of Uvalde, Texas, is commemorating the lives of the 19 children and two teachers who were killed in a mass school shooting one year ago today. NPR's Adrian Florido reports that 12 months later, the community is searching to heal, but struggling to do so. Many families of the victims have said they can't even start to heal until they have more answers about what happened that day. They want to know why it took police more than an hour to enter the classroom and kill the gunman. 
They want to know if their children were among those who bled to death waiting for help to arrive. A year later, several official investigations into those questions are still ongoing, making it hard for families to find closure. Some decided to leave town today. They didn't want to be in Uvalde as it marks one year since the tragedy. Other families are hosting a nighttime vigil at the public park in the center of town. They'll light candles, read the victims' names, and honor their memories. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Uvalde, Texas. A New York judge has set a trial date of next March for the criminal trial of former President Donald Trump. He's accused of falsifying business records at his family company. Trump denies the charges. NPR's Ilya Merritt says that the judge also instructed Trump not to put sensitive material from the trial online. Judge Mershon said Trump risks being held in contempt of court if he doesn't abide by this order. And there's actually a little precedent for this. In 2022, Trump was ordered to pay a $110,000 contempt fine for failing to honor a court subpoena for documents in a separate civil investigation of Trump business practices. NPR's Ilya Merritt's reporting. The eye of a powerful typhoon is sliding just to the north of the U.S. territory, Guam, in the Pacific Ocean. Top sustained winds are at 140 miles per hour. Typhoon Mawa may not make a direct strike on Guam, but its damage is already being reported. The island may get as much as 25 inches of rain. There are flash flood and extreme wind warnings in effect. This is NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Congresswoman Catherine Clark is criticizing Republicans as the national debt ceiling talks drag on. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have been talking but have not reached a deal. Clark says GOP lawmakers are holding up debt negotiations seeking deep cuts to social services. The MAGA majority wants the American people to make an impossible choice accept devastating cuts or a devastating default. Treasury officials say the nation could default on its debts as soon as June 1st if a deal isn't reached. About 10 percent of kids under the age of three in Massachusetts receive what's called early intervention services. That's triple the national rate, according to a new report from the National Institute for Early Education Research. WBUR's Carrie Young has more. Researchers say Massachusetts likely reaches more kids in this age group because of its broad definition of who qualifies for support, like speech and language training. The state includes kids who are at risk of developmental delay in addition to those who have a more concrete medical diagnosis. Steve Barnett is co-director of the National Institute for Early Education Research. Massachusetts far and away has the best access to early intervention. The report also found that fewer kids under age five received special education services during the pandemic. Enrollment dropped by about 15% during the 2020-2021 school year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The state's transportation department has to pay up for using a set of train tracks in the seaport. The state's highest court ruled yesterday that MassDOT improperly used the land to test redline T-cars without paying the landowner. MassDOT lawyers claimed they didn't owe money because of a decades-old agreement. The agency says it's weighing its next move. Academy Award-winning actress Michelle Yeoh will be in Cambridge today. She'll be Class Day speaker for Harvard Law School. The commencement ceremony at Harvard will be tomorrow with another Oscar winner. The keynote speaker will be Tom Hanks. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy. We're kind and curious high school students who love to learn, thrive. Virtual info session, May 25th. BUAcademy.org. The Celtics' playoff run isn't over yet. They stayed alive last night with a 116-99 win over the Heat. Miami still leads the series three games to one. The Celtics' Jason Tatum says he hopes last night's win turns things around. We didn't play well those first three games. We didn't deserve the win. Um, but, you know, we didn't want that to define us, define the season. Um, and we still got a long uphill battle to go. Uh, but tonight was a good start. Game 5 will be tomorrow night at the Garden. The Red Sox lost to the Angels 4-0 in Anaheim last night. Those two teams will play again tonight. Mostly sunny today. It'll be in the upper 60s. Cloudy with some showers overnight. It'll be in the 40s. Mostly sunny tomorrow, and it cools to the low 60s. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ion Television, presenting the Scripps National Spelling Bee. The two-night event airs Wednesday, May 31st and Thursday, June 1st at 8, 7 central on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Could U.S. relations with China improve? A few signs suggest the two countries are making an effort. China's new ambassador arrived in the U.S. yesterday. Xie Feng talked of resuming discussions that have stalled. We hope that the United States will work together with China to increase dialogue, to manage differences, and also to expand our cooperation so that our relationship We'll be back to the right track. China's trade minister will also be here this week, and President Biden talks of a thaw. NPR China affairs correspondent John Ruich is following all this from his base in Shanghai. Hey there, John. Hey, Steve. How different are discussions than they have been the last few months? Hey, well, at least there are some now, right? I mean, at, at the high levels, it seems like there's uh, more contact and perhaps even more restraint in the rhetoric. Uh, so we've got the ambassador uh, now in Washington, uh, China's cabinet minister is coming. You know, earlier this month, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had uh, an over or around eight hour conversation with Wang Yi, who's China's top foreign policy official. They were in Vienna. And a source told me that meeting was really important because it kind of reset expectations for more normal dialogue going forward. And also, China's foreign ministers had a meeting with the U.S. ambassador in China this month. That hasn't been happening a whole lot. They talked about the need to stabilize the relationship. I guess President Biden the other day uh, summed up why there had not been a lot of talk in the last couple of months. He referred to, quote, that silly balloon. <laughs> exactly. You know, Secretary of State Blinken canceled a visit to China after that. Beijing cut dialogue across a range of issues. You know, now they're starting to talk. And not only that, you know, intentionally or not, the findings from the FBI investigation into that balloon, which are likely to be an irritant in the relationship, have not been made public yet. And the Biden administration hasn't yet implemented a set of long-awaited curbs on American investment in China. Maybe that's deliberate, too. I'm really interested in the FBI findings not being made public. That's a thing you can do and that the U.S. government in other situations in the past has done. Just keep things kind of quiet if there's awkward information that doesn't seem to be in the national interest yes. to release. But with that said, with all of these efforts to improve relations, what limits are there to what the two governments can realistically accomplish? 
Well, look, I mean, it's become clear that these two governments have fundamental differences in how they see the world and how they think it should be run. You know, uh, Beijing, for its part, says it's open to dialogue, open to more dialogue. Uh, but the messaging is that they're very wary of it. The foreign ministry the other day, you know, openly questioned the sincerity of the Biden administration. Trust between these two countries has really been decimated. Shuyin Hong is a senior international relations scholar at Renmin University in Beijing. He's not at all optimistic. You know, he says progress depends on whether or not there are positive outcomes from the talks. And it's hard to say at this point if there can be any positive outcomes. In fact, he says he sees very little to support the idea that things are about to turn a corner. Well, how do they build such trust as they can? Well, I asked Scott Kennedy about this. He's a China expert at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He says these coming months should see a bunch of meetings like this leading up to an Asia-Pacific leaders meeting in San Francisco where Biden and Xi Jinping are going to meet. But he says... The path toward greater dialogue and stability is, is quite fragile. And if a specific meeting doesn't go well or some incident comes out of left field that no one is prepared for the uh, domestic politics of both countries and strategic leanings of both will pull them apart. So, yeah, they're starting to talk again, but where it takes the relationship is very unclear. NPR's John Ruich, it's in Shanghai. John, thanks so much. You're welcome. One year after a gunman killed 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, fewer Americans say they believe schools are safe. And the number one thing most people believe could stop mass shootings is a ban on semi-automatic assault-style weapons. These are just some of the findings in a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll. It also finds the highest percentage of Americans in a decade say that it's more important now to control gun violence than to protect gun rights. NPR senior political editor and Correspondent Domenico Montanaro is here with us now to tell us more. Domenico, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. Could you just give us some more detail about these numbers that indicate how people are thinking about gun violence versus protecting gun rights? It seems that there's been uh, some movement there. Yeah, well, 60% we found of the almost 1,300 respondents say it's more important to control gun violence than protect gun rights. And that's the highest percentage in the 10 years Marist has been asking this question. And that also includes 4 in 10 gun owners, by the way. Um, A decade ago, people were split pretty much down the middle on this question, but we've seen mass shooting after mass shooting. And those have seemed to move the needle, but really mostly with Democrats and many independents, two-thirds of Republicans continue to side with protecting gun rights. We also mentioned that a growing number of people also feel that schools are not safe. How do those numbers break down? Yeah, 57% say that their schools in their communities are safe from gun violence, but since 2019, that's down eight points. You know, people saying their local schools are not safe has jumped 10 points in that stretch to 40%. That's a lot of people saying that they're very nervous about sending their kids to school. Um, You know, Democrats are, again, the most likely to say they feel this way. Seven in 10 Republicans, six in 10 independents still feel that their schools are safe. And some of that may come from where people live, frankly. I mean, Democrats are far more concentrated in populous cities and suburbs. And our poll found that people who live in cities are more likely to either themselves or know someone who's experienced gun violence. 
Some of it, though, is ideology, too. I mean, the AR-15 rifle, for example, has become something of a cultural identifier with Republicans. It's not uncommon to see lawmakers wearing AR-15 lapel pins on the floor of the House and Senate. So let's talk about that for a minute, these AR-15-style rifles. And let me just remind people that some military-grade weapons were actually banned for 10 years, from 1994 to 2004, but that ban was allowed to lapse. What do people think about banning them now? Well, Democrats certainly think that this is the top thing that would reduce gun violence. 44% of Democrats uh, chose this as their top option, but only one in 10 Republicans did. They picked instead mental health screenings and arming teachers in schools, something Democrats think is a terrible idea. But it was on those assault-style weapons where we saw the biggest gap between the parties. Look, it is a fact. Mass shootings are growing more common. How are people responding to that? Yeah, you know, like with controlling gun violence versus protecting gun rights, more than six in 10 say that their first reaction when they hear about mass shootings is that there need to be stricter gun laws. But we also saw that when it comes to those saying that their first reaction is people needing to carry guns, that's jumped by 10 points in the last four years, too. And we saw almost six in 10 support stand your ground laws. And with, you know, these very strong feelings, we saw one in five people said that they don't think anything would help curb gun violence. And with Congress divided on this, solutions are being sought locally, and those laws can vary substantially state to state. Some really interesting findings. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Domenico, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. For negotiations over raising the debt limit, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy tapped Louisiana Congressman Garrett Graves to lead the Republican team. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports on how he got the job. South Dakota Republican Dusty Johnson says people may not have heard of the lawmaker the speaker is trusting to lead negotiations with the White House. Garrett Graves is anonymous to everyday Americans, and that's exactly the way he wants it. <laughs> Graves helped McCarthy round up the votes to be elected speaker after 15 ballots and over four days of tense talks. Republican Study Committee Chairman Kevin Hearn heads the group of fiscal conservatives and says this about Graves' assignment right now. You have to appoint people that can sit there and grind this out, and that's what uh, Garrett's been charged with doing since you know, back in January, actually, before there was a debt limit issue. Graves is pushing the speaker's demand to cut the federal budget as part of a deal to increase the country's borrowing authority. Here he is briefing reporters on the talks. The numbers are foundational here. The speaker has been very clear a red line is spending less money. And in less than until we're there, the rest of it is really irrelevant. Graves was elected to the House in 2014. He's now at the leadership table, coordinating strategy with the five House GOP factions, dubbed the Five Families. Johnson heads the Republican Main Street Caucus, centrist GOP lawmakers, and says that trust is the reason that Graves was elevated. It's my assessment that Garrett Graves has not just the trust of the speaker, he has the trust of the conference, and he has the trust of the five families. That is noteworthy. Ohio Republican David Joyce leads another one of these families, the Republican Governance Group, a group of moderates. He says Graves has a reputation for playing practical jokes, recalling one he played on former Congressman Rodney Davis. He's good at him, so I don't want to sick him on myself, but Rodney Davis one time at a hearing, they set up an iPad on the level behind him and above him with an arrow that said doofus. And boy, no, Rodney's making his point. He's, everybody sees doofus, they don't ever worry saying. Before he was elected to the House, Graves chaired a state coastal board in Louisiana, overseeing construction of levees and negotiating permits for land restoration. 
In 2010, he was a trustee for the settlement for the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the largest one in U.S. history. Graves' knowledge on energy projects is coming in handy because permitting reforms are a central policy issue in the discussions. Joyce says mastering policy and the politics of the GOP conference is a balancing act. He's very specific, very detailed, and he's just got a great mind for making sure all the chess pieces are, are moving on the board. Graves has built some good relationships across the aisle. Shalonda Young, the White House budget director and lead negotiator on the debt, is from his district, and they've collaborated to secure money for infrastructure projects there. Vermont Democratic Senator Peter Welch served eight terms in the House and heaped on praise. Garrett is a very effective and uh, skillful person. He's got a great temperament, very smart. If Graves can help broker a deal, he'll likely be called on to help sell it to his party. Johnson says Graves won't be looking for any credit. Many members of Congress are desperate to want you to believe that they're the smartest person in the room. That is not Garrett Graves. For him, it's about the country. For him, it's about the deal. It is not about getting one more list of accolades on Garrett Graves' obituary. But with the clock ticking to get a deal to the president's desk before the country defaults, Graves could also share the blame if things go sideways. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we hear from survivors who continue to struggle one year after a gunman killed 19 students and two teachers at a Uvalde, Texas elementary school. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits. Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer closes May 29th. More at PEM.org. And MathWorks creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. Hunter Biden is the subject of both court and congressional hearings. The committee is concerned by the complicated, suspicious network of over 20 companies. We have identified the Bidens and their associates used to enrich themselves. We'll explore the details behind the headlines about the president's son. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today's issue of our newsletter, WBUR Today, is in your email inbox this morning. Learn why plans for taking the state lottery online are being put on hold. And get details on the new universal pre-K program in Cambridge. Get WBUR Today every day by signing up at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Sunny with a high in the upper 60s today. Showers tonight. Temperatures will fall to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. From Paycom, an HR and payroll tool, 
designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faudel. What's the most effective way to express trauma, dissent, protest, community organizing? Quite a few young Iraqis are choosing rap. That's Narsi Nars, a Canadian rapper of Iraqi descent, and he's just one of many people in the diaspora sharing his lived experience post the U.S. war in Iraq through hip-hop. And inside Iraq, many artists are also choosing rap to depict life in the aftermath of that war and occupation. A lot of them are in their 20s and don't even remember an Iraq before the U.S. invasion. Dahlia al is a British-Iraqi writer, and she recently wrote about all this in The Guardian. Iraqis, both in the region and in the diaspora, haven't had much time to even begin to heal from the kind of scars of the war. Because we kind of lived with the after effects of the war, the way that we experienced the country, either in Iraq or from the diaspora, was defined by terror, by war, by bombs, by Bush, by Saddam, by Blair. And we knew that that was not the reality of us. We knew that that was not our identity, that war and terror did not define us and did not define our culture and our amazing legacy and history. So I think we are a very mobilized generation that are so determined to flip that narrative Mm. and to... um, remove those kinds of associations with Iraqi identity. One example you cite is a song from an Iraqi New Zealander rapper who calls himself mm. INZ. His song, This Is Iraq, it's a take on the childish Gambino song, This Is America. Yeah, this is Iraq. Corrupting the area. Varsity hysteria. Saying we gonna take care of ya. Nah, nah, I'ma get shot for this. Nah, nah, you might get blocked from this. Nah, nah, I'ma go train a kid. Nah, nah, wash off the innocence. And you called this, quote, perhaps the most potent example of this generation of artists. What stands out about this particular song? Yeah, I I love this song and I love the video. So obviously, um, This Is America came out during a time when there were lots of protests and um, revolts against police brutality in the US and a lot of corruption within the state. And this is something that occurs in many other countries, such as Iraq. And I think it's so interesting that this mirroring of Iraq and America, because I guess a lot of Iraqis see America as the antithesis of Iraq, but to kind of directly compare the two through music, I think is so biting and so direct. I mean, I I do wonder why you think young Iraqis have taken on a very American art form and an American art form that has its own history of pointing out repression and oppression specifically of black Americans in this country, why they've taken on that language, that genre to talk about the corruption in their country, the aftermath of this war, the U.S. war, the occupation. The thing about hip-hop is that organically it grew as a protest genre. And one of the most, I think, powerful ways to protest is through satire, because satire makes 
protest and political commentary is so accessible and it kind of uses language and imagery that we already use and know in our day to day rather than kind of like adopting jargon or using institutional language, which kind of alienates a lot of audiences. So far, we've talked about Narsi Nars, Canadian Iraqi rapper. Um, We've talked about INZ, Iraqi New Zealander, born in Scotland, now living in Dubai. Mm -hmm. When you talk about Iraqi rappers that are living in Iraq, is there a difference in the music and what they produce? Um, I think so. I think they talk about, you know, the daily kind of struggles of life there. They talk about the electricity not turning on, having no access to clean water. They talk about police patting them down and searching them and giving them a hard time. They talk about the school infrastructure not being put in place. They talk about, you know, specific politicians or they make like vague remarks to these politicians. But if you look at diaspora Iraqis, I think not just rappers, but a lot of diaspora Iraqi creatives in general our view is a lot more kind of sweeping and a lot more about how we see Iraq from a distance. There's a rapper that you write about, Khalifa OG. I just want to play a little bit of his song, Tapsi. So what is he saying here? Yeah, you've got me like jamming in the studio now. Yeah, me too. There's so much dark humor in his music. He basically says, This is a democratic country and we have the freedom to express. But don't you speak about them, my brother. Of course, that's not allowed. In this line about, you know, being a democratic country and we have the freedom to express, he's obviously being ironic here. Right. And he says that we have, we're a democratic country, we have the freedom to express, but don't speak about them. And them being this, like, faceless kind of, like, mass of leaders, because then you'll be in trouble. Yeah, and you quote Khalifa Oji in your article. He was quoted in The National saying, you know, Iraqis don't want to talk about depressing things. They want to have fun. And that's why he puts satire in his music, right? Yes, exactly. He said that as Iraqi people, we are upset, we're depressed all the time. We don't want to listen to sad things about our country. And I was there recently in March. And no one talks about the war. No one talks about the protests. No one talks about the political situation. Number one, because you get in trouble for talking about things like that quite directly. But also because people want to move on. They are sick and tired of being so depressed and always being the victims. You know, we are not victims and we do have a lot of agency. But then you also write about another Iraqi rapper named Vaif. And he's very direct. His music is much darker. What is his message in the song Story of Iraq? With Vaif, one of the lines is, Dead bodies like flower pots, in each corner you'll find hundreds. Red blood colored the streets and we became the victims. It's tricky because I wanted to include that to show the reality of, of what happened. And for so many Iraqis that are still processing and they're still healing, even the young generation, it is their realities, and to kind of ignore that is not doing any Iraqi justice. That's journalist Dalia El-Dajeli. She wrote a piece for The Guardian called We Are a Forgotten People, How Rap Music Processed Trauma in Iraq. Thanks for sharing this with us and taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much, Dalia. It's been a pleasure.
This is NPR News. You're starting your Wednesday with WBUR coming up at morning on Morning Edition at 845. The accessibility of the birth control pill is a big issue right now. We trace the origins of the debate back here to Massachusetts. It's 829. Coming to City Space on Monday, June 5th, New York Times cooking writer Hetty McKinnon discusses her new cookbook, Tender Heart. It's an ode to vegetables and family. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Today marks one year since a gunman in Texas killed 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. President Biden plans to mark the day with an event at the White House this afternoon. Local officials have closed that school permanently. There's still no agreement to raise the debt ceiling as time grows shorter for Congress to pass legislation and avoid a default. Here's NPR's Windsor Johnston. An extended period of default could lead to another hike in interest rates, a government shutdown, and missed Social Security and Medicare payments. Economists also warned that a default would push the economy into a recession and send U.S. and global markets reeling. And time is running out. Without an agreement, the government could run out of money to pay its bills as soon as June 1st. Lawmakers in South Carolina have approved legislation that bans most abortions in the state after about six weeks of pregnancy. The state Senate gave its approval yesterday following previous passage by the state House. Republican State Senator Katrina Sheely says she supported a 12-week ban. I think a 12-week you know, amendment was a good compromise, and that's what I said, and you know, they didn't want to go with it. Dow futures are down 110 points ahead of the open. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Boston City Council meets today to hopefully finally settle on a new district map. Their old one was tossed out by a federal judge. As WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports, councilors have less than a week to pass a new map or risk postponing the fall elections. Councilors have met daily to try to work out a new redistricting map by their May 30th deadline. The body has to create nine districts of roughly equal size that comply with the Federal Voting Rights Act. But at-large city councilor Julia Mejia says the process is being stalled by some councilors who want to keep precincts that boost their chances of getting reelected. It is a reason why people don't trust government. And I am really hopeful that we're going to get to where we need to be by putting the work ahead of politics. District councilors say they're fighting to keep their neighborhoods intact. Secretary of State Bill Galvin warns that a court may take over the process if the council can't compromise in time. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Point 32 Health says some patient information was taken from its computer systems during a recent cyber attack. The health insurance company says the attack mostly affected its operation of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. It began in late March and lasted three weeks. The company says it'll offer identity protection and credit monitoring to anyone affected. 
The operator of a number of sober homes around Massachusetts it's a cause, is accused of defrauding clients and the government. Daniel Cleggett faces dozens of charges, including mortgage and wire fraud. He was indicted yesterday alongside sober home manager Nicholas Espinoza. Prosecutors say the two tried to write off sober homes as personal residences. They also allegedly overbilled clients and defrauded a federal pandemic-era loan program. A heads-up for riders on the Newburyport-Rockport commuter rail line. The T says you should expect severe delays because of a signal problem in Chelsea and Salem. There are no specifics on how severe those delays are or how long they'll last. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty on stage tomorrow through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Celtics beat the Heat 116-99 to last night in Miami to keep their season alive. Boston still trails the series three games to one. Game five will be back here in Boston tomorrow night. The Red Sox have now lost three straight. They fell to the Angels last night 4 nothing out west. The teams wrap up their series tonight. Upper 60s today under mostly sunny skies. It may reach the low 70s as you go toward central mass. Tonight we'll have lows in the upper 40s and showers are likely. Tomorrow mostly sunny and cooler with a high in the low to mid-60s. It's 57 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. You probably have heard by now that today marks one year since that horrifying shooting in the town of Uvalde, Texas, where 19 fourth graders and two teachers were killed in their elementary school classroom. It was the beginning of 12 months of agony for their families and everyone around them. NPR's Adrian Florido is in Uvalde, and he's with us now. Adrian, good morning. I'm so glad you're there to keep us connected to the story and these families. Thank you, Michelle. Good morning. So I understand that members of the community call this day the one-year mark, not the anniversary. Why is that? Well, because they see uh, anniversaries as something that you celebrate. Uh, But today is such a painful day that some of the victims' families have actually uh, left town here. They, They just couldn't bear to be in town. What do the families tell you that the last year has been like? It's, it's been an awful, awful search for answers, for, for accountability, and, uh, and for healing. No, nothing surpasses the pain of losing a child or a family member as brutally as these families did uh, on that day a year ago. But what made it worse, Michelle, as you remember, was uh, the failed police response. Police waited more than an hour to enter the classroom and kill the shooter. And uh, during that time, some of the victims slowly bled to death. So for the last year, uh, many of these families have been demanding answers about what happened on that day. Well, what what are some of the questions that still have not been fully answered, despite all these investigations that have taken place? Well, how did it all go so wrong? Uh, who uh, among the police officers on the scene that day was to blame for that uh, bungled response? And there's one question that a lot of the families here want answered more than any of them. Uh, listen to uh, Veronica Mata. She is the mother of 10-year-old Tess Marie Mata. 
I want to know if there was some chance that she could have survived. I feel like if we know, then those what if questions won't be there anymore. A lot of parents don't know if their child was one of the ones who died right away or or if they held on waiting for help. Uh, and not knowing that is really haunting for them. Uh, and Mata told me that if she can't get closer to an answer to that question, then she doubts that she'll make it very far on the path to healing. So Adrian, is it even possible for some of these families to find an answer to that question? A lot of the families know that they might not uh, they might not ever know the answer to that question, but they want to see what investigators turn up because, as you said, there are still several investigations that are ongoing uh, at the local, state, and federal level. Uh, and because they're active investigations, a lot of information has not been made public even a year later, even to the families. Uh, so many families are pinning their hopes for closure on the findings of these investigations whenever they come, uh, which could still be months or longer away. Other families are, are skeptical they'll, they'll get much. So, so how else have the, the families been coping? Because I know that you've been keeping in touch with them over the course of the year. Yeah, many of them have thrown themselves into projects to honor their children's memories. Uh, others have thrown themselves into activism, traveling the state and the country to lobby for gun control. But it's also been a really frustrating process for families because they have, in many cases, struggled to gain support for their cause, even even from neighbors here. Uh, over the weekend, Kimberly Rubio, whose daughter was killed, uh, she spoke at an event here. There's just a part of the community that's just ready to move on. Like this whole situation was inconvenient for them mm -hmm. and they're ready to put it behind them and move on so that Uvalde isn't just remembered for this tragedy. But that's not what we want. We don't want Uvalde to just be remembered for this tragedy. We just want to honor our children and those two teachers. They should always be remembered. They always have a place. This is their community. It's just a hint, Michelle, of the many divisions that have emerged here since the shooting. Uh, but Kimberly Rubio, she is going to be one of the parents leading a candlelight vigil in March today in honor of her daughter Lexi and all the other victims. Uh, it's going to happen at the main public park here in town, and people are driving in from across Texas to attend. That is NPR's Adrian Florido. He's in Uvalde, Texas. Adrian, thank you so much. Thanks, Michelle. Okay, the AAA rating on government debt is as good as it can be. It shows that a country reliably pays its bills. And just like your personal credit score determines things like how much credit you can get and how much it will cost, that credit rating affects the interest rates a country pays to borrow. Two of three ratings agencies have given the U.S. a AAA rating up to now, though negotiations over the debt limit now endanger that. NPR's David Gura joins us now. David, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for being with us early. How much is at risk? Well, you know, in large part, what these ratings reflect is that the U.S. is in a really unique economic position. It's the world's largest economic engine, and the U.S. has always paid its bills on time to the companies and countries that have bought its bonds. But every time the U.S. goes through this, and this happens dozens of times since World War II, investors and policymakers have the chance to think twice and so do ratings agencies. And one of them has taken action in the past. S&P Global did downgrade the U.S. to AA plus back in 2011. That was just a few days after another bruising battle over the debt ceiling. You know what they do, S&P, Moody's, Fitch, is they dig through data. Analysts meet with government officials. And Kathy Jones, who's the chief fixed income strategist at Charles Schwab, told me their goal is to answer one key question. What's the probability of default? Typically with the U.S., it's been nearly zero. But now it rises when we get into these fights over the debt ceiling. 
Well, given that the U.S. was downgraded by one agency the last time there was a serious conflict over this, is the U.S. at risk of losing the AAA ratings from the others? Of course, if there's no deal and there is a default, we'd see downgrades. That's a given. But even if there isn't a default, these ratings agencies are going to ask themselves whether U.S. debt deserves to be AAA. You know, as we've said, one of these agencies doesn't think so. It's been 12 years, and S&P still has the U.S. a notch below AAA. The chair of S&P's Sovereign Rating Committee back then was John Chambers. He's retired now, and I asked him what the rationale was for that downgrade, and Chambers told me there really were two reasons. One was um, the political impasse and the fractiousness of uh, policy setting, and the other was the fiscal trajectory. In other words, it had to do with the size of the country's debt and deficit and also how difficult it was then for policymakers to agree on anything, including what to do with the debt ceiling. So the more things change, the more the more they stay the same. And we could see Fitch and Moody's follow suit. And although they declined to talk with me on the record, Steve, they have indicated they are watching these talks very closely. How much would a downgrade matter to all of us? Well, odds are we'd see a steep sell-off in the markets. The day after that downgrade back in 2011, the S&P 500 sank by almost 7%. We'd probably see the dollar weaken and U.S. government bonds would be seen as riskier. Because of that, investors would demand higher interest from the U.S. because of that additional risk, and that would make it more costly for the U.S. to raise money. Your credit card analogy is a good one. But see, ratings are just one part of how professional investors make decisions. And at the end of the day, firms do their own analysis. They look at those data and ratings from these agencies before they decide to buy bonds or to sell them. And I want to say, despite all this, the U.S. is still seen as a country that is safe and secure. And something else it has going for it is right now, investors who are in the market for government debt really have limited options. They don't have a whole lot of alternatives. Not going to buy from Argentina, I suppose. Go. David, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. That's NPR's David Gura. Always a safe investment. This is NPR News. It's a Wednesday on WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, a new survey from the Federal Reserve shows a growing number of people are putting off medical care because of rising costs. Upper 60s today and mostly sunny. Tonight, upper 40s with a good chance of rain. Tomorrow, we drop back to the low and mid-60s under mostly sunny skies. It's 57 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh Food Generation Restaurant and Catering, farm-to-plate Caribbean-American meals made with fresh, locally sourced ingredients. FreshFoodGeneration.com. A new RNA startup is making its official debut in Cambridge after raising $300 million in funding. Renegade Therapeutics says it's focused on engineering RNA medicines for the liver. The company already employs about 100 people. The parent company of First Citizens Bank is suing HSBC for allegedly poaching former Silicon Valley Bank employees, including some Boston-based workers. First Citizens bought SVB following its collapse. The company accuses HSBC of hiring those workers in an attempt to access trade secrets. It's suing for more than $1 billion in damages. The Verb Hotel in Boston's Fenway neighborhood is the most out-of-the-ordinary hotel in the U.S. That's according to Needham-based TripAdvisor's annual Traveler's Choice rankings. Reviewers said the Verb provides a unique experience with a rock-and-roll theme worthy of photo ops. It's 844. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Food and Drug Administration will decide this summer whether to make the birth control pill available over-the-counter. Right now, you need a prescription. The 20-year effort to make the switch has been shaped by the pill's controversial beginnings. And as WBWAR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, it all started in Massachusetts. In Brookline, to be precise, in a clinic for infertility. That's right. The story of the birth control pill begins in the 1950s with women who wanted a baby. It was the baby boom, and they wanted desperately to be pregnant. Margaret Marsh is a historian of medicine at Rutgers University. She says the man who ran the clinic was a devout Catholic named John Rock. The most prominent infertility specialist in the nation. He thought the women might be having trouble getting pregnant because of an underdeveloped reproductive system. So he proposed giving them hormones that would let the system rest and then restart. He enrolled 80 patients. He didn't have to tell them it was an experiment. Back then, there was little in the way of research ethics. But Rock did things differently. He was a real unicorn. He never asked women to be part of a research study unless he explained to them everything that was going on. At the same time, there was a biologist named Gregory Pincus out near Worcester. He was looking for a birth control pill with backing from prominent feminists, including Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Pincus was experimenting with the same hormones as Rock. He even gave them to patients at a state mental hospital. Soon, Pincus and Rock teamed up. They looked at uterine tissue from Rock's patients and realized none of the women were ovulating. This was birth control. Marsh says there was just one problem. In Massachusetts during this time, birth control was prohibited. It was against the law. Pincus and Rock scrambled to figure out where to conduct a bigger trial. They considered Japan and Hawaii, but ended up flying south to Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, birth control was legal and had been legal since 1937. But the trial was still controversial. Dr. Idris Rice Ray ran Pincus and Rock's research in Puerto Rico. In an archival interview, she remembers Catholic clergy spoke out against it. But that helped recruit participants. The priests would denounce the, um, the methods we were using in the pulpit, and then the women would run in the next day and say, what is it the priest said we couldn't have? About 800 women participated. Many were recruited from a housing project. But it's not clear these women were told this new drug was still experimental. Three women died, and the dose was many times what it is now, causing some severe nausea, dizziness, headaches. Pincus dismissed the side effects. They even say, you know, that many of the effects were psychological because we Puerto Rican women are, you know, hyperactive emotionally. Lourdes Lugo Ortiz is a professor at the University of Puerto Rico. She says Pincus dismissed the side effects because he didn't want anything to come in the way of his drug succeeding. But Puerto Rican politicians, newspaper columnists, and others took a stand against the trial. The claim was that Puerto Rico was used at the testing site, that we were guinea pigs, that our women, you know, our women 
who are abused by the U.S. imperialism. Still, the trial went forward, and the data gathered in Puerto Rico was a game-changer for women around the world. The pill was approved by the Food and Drug Administration in 1960. There was considerable controversy here because the pill is essentially what they would call back then a lifestyle drug. Meaning a drug that doesn't treat a medical condition. Marsh says that was a first for the FDA. Other countries followed. Within a few years, millions were taking it daily. Yet in Massachusetts, the birth control pill remained illegal until five years later, when the U.S. Supreme Court gave married couples the right to use contraceptives. Today, the pill is available without a prescription in over 100 countries, but not in the U.S., including Massachusetts and Puerto Rico, the communities that first tested the pill. The Food and Drug Administration is expected to decide whether to change that this summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. Today, why a climate change summit set for November is already making headlines. Plus, soccer fans in Spain fight back against racist behavior. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Charles River Apparel's warehouse event, June 2nd and 3rd in Sharon. Partial proceeds support the Wellness Warriors, an active paddling support group for cancer survivors. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. One year ago, 19 children and two teachers were killed at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Three families who lost children share memories of their loved ones. She was just a normal 10-year-old little girl who was going to be the world's next greatest marine biologist. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Debt ceiling negotiations continue between congressional leaders and the Biden administration with a default deadline looming. Florida Governor Republican Ron DeSantis is expected to announce his 2024 presidential bid today on Twitter. And Boston City Councilors meet again today as they work to approve a new electoral map. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery and engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Choosing between your health and the health of your bank account. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Benishor in for David Brancaccio. More people are putting off medical care because of how much it costs, according to a new survey from the Federal Reserve. 28% of people say they skipped some kind of health care last year because they couldn't afford it. That is an increase of 4% in a year. Marketplace's Samantha Fields reports. Healthcare costs have actually been rising more slowly than other costs in the last couple of years. But people's decisions about consuming health care aren't determined only by health care prices. 
Matthew Fiedler at the USC Brookings Schaefer Initiative for Health Policy says they're also determined by how much someone makes, whether they're insured, and what their other expenses are. When people's incomes are lower or they feel other pressure on their family budgets, they may cut back in a lot of places, including health care. And a lot of people's budgets have been increasingly strained recently, says Vivian Ho, a health economist at Rice University. Because of inflation, I think people have to make tough choices. They have to decide, am I going to pay the rent? Am I going to buy food? Or am I going to get medical care that I could have now or later? Low-income people, people who are sicker, and people without insurance are most likely to delay or forego certain kinds of care, says Cynthia Cox at the health policy nonprofit KFF. They decide, is this something that I absolutely need to get or not? So that's why often the first thing you see people put off is dental care or vision care. The Fed survey found people are also likely to skip follow-up visits with their doctors, mental health care, and prescriptions. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. To study Sartre or sauté. Well, more college students are going for sauté. Enrollment in two-year culinary programs increased massively this spring, up 10% from last year. For context, community college enrollment in general grew just half a percent. This is all according to a report out today from the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has more. One of the things you'll learn in a culinary program is how sausage is made. Really? Joshua Wickham at Columbus State Community College in Ohio demonstrates. You turn the crank and it pulls that plunger up from the top. Sausage making is part of the school's culinary arts program, which Wickham helps direct. He says the field's growing in popularity partly because being a chef is now glorified on television and social media in a way it didn't used to be. We're no longer, you know, the the dregs of society. We are now uh, artisan laborers, right? We are appreciated now um, for our craft. About half of all chefs and head cooks go to college to learn that craft, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Bill Lawhorn is with the agency and says there's increasing demand for people to fill those roles. There's a huge number of establishments that are full service that need that chef or head cook. It's not just restaurants hiring, but elder care facilities and hospitals to serve an aging population with a taste for artisanal sausage. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is very down. It's down 1.7%. Dow S&P and NASDAQ futures also down in the 4 to 6 tenths percent range with the Dow future down 118 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is at 3.685%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at PaloAltoNetworks.com. What determines how a child grows up and what kind of life they will go on to live? It's a question that's critical to how socially mobile our society is. And a key factor, maybe unsurprisingly, is how much money kids' parents make. But new research finds that the timing of that income is particularly important. Parental income in the teenage years is more predictive of what kind of opportunities children will get as adults. Stephen Durloff is a professor at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. He's on the team studying this, and he joins us now. Professor, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. First off, your research is on intergenerational mobility. 
What exactly does that mean? How do you define it? Intergenerational mobility broadly defined is asking the extent to which the experiences of childhood and adolescence determine outcomes as an adult. And so the idea of a mobile society is one in which the outcomes, the opportunities that one has in adulthood are not unduly constrained by the uh, vicissitudes, the accidents of childhood. So as one might assume, the money that parents make has a direct effect on how well off their children go on to be. But you found that there are certain times in a child's life when what their parents are making has extra impact. Yes. And so in the research that I've done, and I absolutely want to mention my co-authors, Yusung Chang and June Park at Indiana University Bloomington, and Sung Hee Lee, who is at the Korean Development Institute. And what we found was interesting in the sense that it seemed that the power of every dollar for a parent or every income increment for a parent was increasing with the age of the child. That is so interesting that the, the money the parents are making when the kids are, are a little older has a larger impact than what they're making when the kids are really young. Why do you think that is? If you think about the ways that income translates into the things that affect children, they're different in early childhood than they are in adolescence. What matters in adolescent years is what schools a child attends and what neighborhoods a person grows up in. And so I think what is most likely being uncovered in the peer statistical analyses is that parental incomes just do different things at different ages. What other variables factor most, most heavily? That's a great question. And part of the ongoing research program is to move beyond income. Your family also has a structure. Are the parents both at home uh, or not? Yet another thing is where you live. And the third thing, which I mentioned, is, is schools. And so ultimately, in thinking about mobility, one wants to understand how different trajectories of family income, family structure, neighborhood characteristics, and school characteristics are determining adult outcomes. And there, once you kind of have the, the full vision, that would tell you where the policy levers are. Stephen Durloff teaches at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. He's also the director of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth, Inequality, and Mobility there. Professor Durloff, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. In New York, I'm Sabri Benishore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.